Hello everyone, welcome back to episode 50 of Latter Day Takes. What a journey it has been. I've been doing this for about a half a year. Cannot thank you all enough for taking even an ounce of time. I know an ounce of time is an actual measurement of time, but taking even a second of time to listen to this podcast means a lot to me. Um, I hope the message is resonating. I hope uh, it gives other perspective on things that you guys might find important or whatever else. I hope it's been entertaining at the very least. But seriously, thank you all. Um, it's been a steady climb and it's been fun to see that taking place and to to see everyone's support and people reaching out. And uh, I plan on keeping doing this for a while. You know, it's not easy to do a lot of the time turning out content like this, but I do have a fun time doing it and I think it's worth it. So I'll keep doing it. And I especially appreciate the encouragement that I've been given. On today's episode, Chase makes a return and we talk about a few topics, kind of a hodgepodge today, per usual when Chase comes. Uh, first and foremost, we do a little recap on the TikTok missionary thing. And then that actually leads into a pretty funny mission story that I have that I haven't shared in a while. Certainly not on the podcast. I think you'll all will find that one entertaining. It's about a missionary that ditched his comp like just a few weeks into his mission. <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, and the details therein. Uh, outside of that, we get into this. Uh, we watched a movie this last weekend. It was called Those Who Wish Me Dead. Not great. Not great. And we'll tell you why. We give a full recap. Spoiler warning for that one for those that want to watch it, which I don't think this demographic is particularly appealed by those types of movies, but I could be mistaken. Spoiler alert regardless. Not a great movie. Anyway, we get into that. Then we get into kind of the interesting societal perspective that we have of men and women in the workforce and how that's valued and how that, you know, takes its toll specifically um, on that battle of families, men, women dynamics, and what success even really means and what status and all that really is and how we let society define that probably way more than we should. Um, and then I think from there we kind of dive into just a little bit of BYU recap stuff. Some news, recent news that BYU was a top 10 brand within the college sports arena, which I thought was cool. I also thought it was valid. We make our cases there and then talk a little Taysom Hill, Jameis Winston quarterback battle. Anyway, hope you all enjoy this episode. Thank you again for the support. Episode 50, can't believe it. It'll be fun when it gets to episode 100 and that'll happen sooner than later. I can't believe how quickly we got to 50. Anyway, hope you all had a great weekend. Hope uh, you're getting up for a great week, per usual. Um, we're getting into uh, the end of summer here, so football season is coming up. I hope you all are excited for that, at least. I'm excited for fall weather and just the fall season in general, and uh, I do hope we have a long fall, because uh, it seems like we've certainly had a long summer, so I hope we don't just get right into winter. That would be a true tragedy. Anyway, have a good week, everybody, and I will catch you all later. Mormons are my favorite. They're my favorite. Yeah, okay. They're absolutely yeah. my favorite. All Mormons are nutty Mormons. Mormons are the nicest cult of all time. Beautiful, and these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> Everybody's so nice in Utah. Just being a Mormon's nutty. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yeah. best cult. My favorite religion is Mormons. They're the nicest people. Shout out to the Latter-day Saints. All right, joining me on the pod today is the number one recurring guest, Chase Bartholomew, back in the studio again. Glad to have you back. 
I'm always happy to be here. Always happy to be here? Well, most of the time. Yeah, that's fair. I'm not yeah. even always happy to be here. Yeah. Well, I just got back from an eye appointment, uh, had my prescription renewed, and it just made me think about like, what on earth did people do in the pre-corrective lenses days when you had bad vision? You were just screwed. I think they had bad attitudes. They probably did. And I, I, I just don't, what would I do? I would be completely useless if I didn't have corrective lenses. I think like if I lived back in those times, like I would just have to sit in a hut and people would just bring me things because I wouldn't be able to provide any any useful service to anyone. I wouldn't bring you anything for the record. Yeah, well, just thinking like right now, like from now on, whenever I fly over an ocean, I'm going to have an entire box of contacts in my suitcase just in case I run into a castaway situation because these the pair I got on is going to be good for a month or two. And then after that, what am I going to do? So what? How bad is like? What's your vision? It's like minus. Like so, it's like. Oh yeah, what's the, they do a minus plus thing now? Right? Yeah, see, so yeah, minus means you're nearsighted, which means you can't see far away, and mine's like minus four and minus four point seven five in one eye. So it's pretty bad. How out of how many? Well, I think so. I think that the way it's calculated, I should know better because I'm a doctor. But <laughs> I, I, I think that means so my vision would be like sixteen, twenty. No, 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 that's, not, that's wrong. No, that's yeah. very wrong. Yeah, we, I mean, we, and doctor, we don't, we don't deal with this, so this isn't, this is not a reflection of my knowledge as a doctor. Sure. But yeah, I, I, I don't know how they calculate it, but whatever it is, I, my vision sucks. That's, that's, uh, that's all you need to know. I know I'm 2010, which is good. Yeah. That, that means the, what the average person can see from 10 feet away, I can see from 20 feet away. I don't know where I stand on this minus plus scale anymore, though. Yeah. Because that's kind of new, isn't it? No, that, I think that's pretty standard been around for a while but because i haven't heard I, it until I, recently. I don't know how that is used to calculate like your you know 2020 or whatever that score is yeah i don't know mm. how they do that mm. but the point is is uh i would not be a good tom hanks and castaway dude that i don't i mean let's be honest no none of us would i don't think you may just get frustrated a little bit quicker than actually no you get frustrated way quicker and i'm not sure how much that would have to do with your vision but well even neither if it, of us would last that long let's a, be honest a ship would be like coming by and i wouldn't even see it they would be ready to save me and i wouldn't even be able to start the signal fire it'd be like like pounding on that horn and you'd be like wait what's that actually it kind of reminds me so i don't know if you saw this there was a youtube thing like it was like a viral video probably 10 years ago and it was this kid who's apparently blind and he used like he he used echolocation like a bat to get around so he would like do these clicks and he could basically avoid obstacles and get around decently well just basically being a bat and in the I, i'm pretty sure now it was like some kind of long con this guy was doing because he i remember a part of the video unless i'm making this up in my head he was like making shots with a basketball <laughs> using his echolocation. I'm like, yeah, that's BS. This is some kind of circus con or something like that. That does. That seems, yeah, that seems ridiculous. That reminds me of Clifford, though. Do you remember that movie? Clifford with the Martin Big Red Short. Dog? No. no. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with the Big Red Dog, but um, Martin Short and uh, Charles Grodin. Martin Short plays a kid, like a legit kid. He's not pretending to be a kid in the movie. Like, he actually is a kid in the movie, but he's just a demon child. And they made him look way shorter, too, so it was kind of funny. But um, Clifford pretended to be deaf in the airport so he could like get money from people and he'd have these cards and add a picture of him like with his hand behind his ear like he was trying to hear <laughs> it's like hilarious that, that's 100 percent what this kid was doing yeah 
Clifford is actually an underrated movie. It's super old, and it probably doesn't hold up well now, but it was funny when I was a kid, for sure. Is it better than the movie we just watched? Uh, yeah, way better, <laughs> actually, than the movie we just watched. Um, actually, I do want to talk about that in a second, though, before we get to that. Um, so a little teaser for those that are listening. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a movie review today. Um, before that, though... I wanted to go over the my rant on TikTok missionaries because you've seen that stuff, right? Oh yeah, yeah, all the stuff you've been putting out on Instagram and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. I, the only thing is that I don't. We didn't really, really dive into the TikTok missionary topic. Like we covered it here and there. I just, I'm just baffled that that it's like it, it's a thing. Like there are mission presidents out there that allow that, and I'm ninety five percent certain it's because they don't know. Like they don't. They just say, like, use social media to get the word out and try and get um, prospective investigators out of that. And so the missionaries are like, well, then TikTok is social media. Let's do it, you know? Oh, yeah. I I can't imagine most mission presidents are that tuned in to what TikTok even is. Right, exactly. How that that stuff works. Yeah, it's like they have zero clue. I mean, so it's such an ambiguous way of, like, how would you define TikTok, right? You. It's this video platform, and they'd be like, oh, like Instagram, right? Oh, and like you could post music and videos on it, and yeah, okay, like Instagram or Facebook. or And it's just kind of like, yeah, that's it. That's just what it's like. I mean, when you compare it, like you could make the argument that TikTok is kind of a subset of all those things, and because of that, it's really what's the harm in sharing it. But I just feel like it's such a waste of time. Like I don't feel like people are going on TikTok and saying – Oh, that missionary can do backflips. I think I'm going to see... Now, I might be interested in the gospel now. Like, I don't see how those two things coincide. Well, I'm just surprised the church is so image conscious these days that they're they're just ready to just hand the reins over to these 19-year-old morons to project this image on social media that's seen by thousands, if not millions of people. And they're basically handing the keys to their PR to these idiots Wait, you think the church is image well, the, conscious? The, the fact that the yeah. How so? I mean, I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just curious what you mean by that. It seems to me that the church has made a serious effort ever since the like the I'm a Mormon campaign started. Like, was that ten years ago? It seems to me that the church has really had a focus on their image in in the public spotlight. Hmm. And so, I mean, maybe maybe I'm full of crap, but that's what it seems to me. So, for them to like not be clamping or clamping down on this kind of behavior to me is interesting but yeah I, I mean i don't know why they're not clamping down on it per se i think they probably leave it generally to the mission presidents because i think there's been that whole push to make missionaries you know like the rules less stringent so to speak and i mean i i would think that's fine like i didn't care when they came out and said you can now talk to your family like every week if you wanted to i didn't i really didn't care like i i don't think it was necessary but at the same time, it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, we do live in a day and age where what's the harm if yeah. a missionary wants to do that? I didn't see a big deal with that. So maybe it's coming as a result of all that, where it's like, let's just not be too over the top on what rules we can apply when it comes to social media use and things like that. I don't know. Relating to that, though, I do hope that within these missions, it's kind of viewed as like, if you're the one calling your mom every week, that you're kind of viewed as a wimp. <laughs> I, I hope that culture is kind of existing to some degree. But well, you, what, what were you, how were you viewed as a wimp in your mission? Like, what would you have to do to, for other missionaries to talk about you and be like, yeah, just, if, you, if you were the one that cried all the time or like, had was a, that a thing? Oh yeah. We had, I, I remember there was multiple occasions of kids who kind of had 
mental breakdowns and crying in the corner. <laughs> you know what? Actually, I have a funny story about that. Um, there was a guy, so he was in my generation. We started, that means we started the mission together, obviously. We were in the MTC together. We weren't in the same district, but we kind of hit it off. We were buddies. He called me randomly one time. This would have been about close to a year in the mission. And he was kind of a new senior companion. And he calls me. It's the middle of the morning. It's We're studying. And he's like, dude, my companion's gone. And I was like, what? I love, I love these stories. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, he's like, I don't know where he is. Like, we kind of had a fight while we were planning this morning. He went to the bathroom. He was in there for an hour. And I started, like, knocking on it. And I was calling his name. He wasn't responding. So I, like, broke the door down. And he wasn't in it. <laughs> And there's, like, a little window that you can kind of, like, crawl out of to get to this little back area of the apartment, which, by the way, is two floors, is the second floor, is two floors up. And he must have jumped down from the wall. And and what's even more hilarious is that, uh, so, I mean, okay, let me just take you through this slowly, methodically. I get that call, and I'm just like, well, dude, I mean, have you looked for him? And he's like, I, no, I mean, I just kind of looked around the apartment, I looked around, he's not around, and I'm like, well, you should probably call the mission president. He's like, I did call the president. And I was like, then why are you calling me? Like, like what are you telling me after the fact? Like, I can't do anything to help you. We weren't even in the same zone. Um, and so, and then he's like, wait, let me call you back. The APs are calling. And I'm like, yeah, okay, take their call. And then I didn't really hear from him until like a few hours later. And he's like, yeah, like we, I found him. Uh, he was uh, he was at the payphone talking to his girlfriend, bawling his eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> What the best part is, is that I turned out to be that same kid's district leader in, in my next area. He was in an area called Puerto Morelos, which is like just south of Cancun. It's in Playa del Carmen's district. And I became district leader of Playa del Carmen. And I met this kid. And he was in his fourth transfer at the time. And he was actually a solid missionary. And he shared the story from his perspective. And it was hilarious. And what was kind of funny is that my buddy, who was in my generation, is kind of an a-hole. So, like, I could, I mean, I don't think it's ever justified to sneak out the bathroom window and jump down a second floor floor window, but I understand his frustration with this guy, because the guy, like I said, is kind of an a-hole, and he would have been a tough, especially first senior companion, but he tells us a story, and what he added to it was that when he fell off the wall onto the ground, he actually blacked out for a second. He, <laughs> he doesn't even know for how long. He just all of a sudden woke up, and he was on the ground, and he just, like, kind of gathers himself, finds a payphone, and he did call his parents first, but neither of them answered, and then ends up calling his girlfriend, because he's just like, I gotta talk to somebody, like, I'm having the hardest time in the world, and when you hear it from that perspective, it's actually not as bad of a story, because you kind of, like, you kind of sympathize with the kid, um, and plus, he had actually, a, he had a pretty tough time, I think his parents had recently divorced before he started the mission, things like that. Anyway, to come full circle, this kid ended up as AP of that mission. Oh, wow. And so, I mean, that's not to say that, like, oh, we fully recovered, because I think most APs are garbage, but... Um, what a great guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, at the end of the day, he made it to the Celestial Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> well, all APs go to the Celestial Kingdom. Oh, I know, right? exactly. Anyway, that was kind of a little side story that I wasn't, didn't plan on telling, but that was a... That was yeah. a freaking good time good experience on the mission for sure good guy i haven't talked to him basically since then but it cracks me up that he he thought going incognito in that situation was going to be helpful because 
like what what did he think his companion was gonna think he was just taking an extra long dump <laughs> so I'm like, like like what was the end game there i mean you might as well just say hey i'm gonna go make a phone call you can come with me or not my only hope is that if he knew he was gonna sneak out that window that he didn't waste any time where he's like i'm not gonna sit here for 40 minutes and then be like wait i'm just gonna leave because then he only gives himself 20 minutes i hope he took the full hour yeah <laughs> like getting out of there getting out of dodge Climbing down that wall, blacking out, getting to the payphone and having a solid conversation with his girlfriend. But anyway. That actually reminds me, um, my trainer in the mission, great guy. He was kind of harsh on the, um, uh, as far as the way he trained me and stuff. But I remember our, my first phone call, he was sitting there with like a stopwatch on, on like timing my phone call because we were only supposed to have 40 minutes. And he was watching the clock like a hawk. And then he took like double the allotted time. I thought you're such an asshole after that. <laughs> but yeah, did maybe, you tell him that? Uh, I think I just held, I think I just wrote it in my journal. Probably. <laughs> did you swear in your journal? I did a few times. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Son um, of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wasn't planning on going down that route, yeah. but I mean, I don't know. Do we have more to say about TikTok missionaries? I just think it's got to run its course eventually because the ROI on that has got to be so low. But the the effort they're putting into it has got to be, it seems like it's so much. And like, let's be honest, some of it's impressive. Like the dancing one that I shared on my Instagram, like obviously that kid can dance. In fact, I made a joke that he was going to be the second gay Cosmo to come out of the closet <laughs> at BYU in the next five years or something like that. But uh, obviously that's not a gay joke. It's more of a Cosmo joke, I think. But anyway, um, clearly a great dancer. Uh, who cares? Yeah. Like I don't see it as a real legitimate tool for finding investigators i don't know not my thing but whatever mine either but all right well let's get into that movie so i was pretty pretty uh bullish on watching the those who wish me dead movie yes you were which i i did even say it's funny i said i was like it's got angelina jolie in it which i'm not thrilled about but it's taylor sheridan directing it who has directed one of my favorite movies in the past five years wind river and done the screenplay for a couple more that are awesome hell or high waters another one of my favorite movies in the in the past five years and he did the screenplay for that and then did the screenplay for both sicarios i mean and he does and he directs yellowstone so like the guy's got some real chops he's actually one of my favorite people in hollywood so once i said all that everybody i told this to was on board they were like you know what that sounds like taylor sheridan like he's got like we like him like you guys like those movies too yeah Angelina Jolie being the one X factor that was unpredictable there. We're just like, we don't know how this is going to go. Turns out it wasn't actually her fault. She was just playing a role. But the movie sucked so bad. You saw it with me. I mean, yeah, we're, no, we're on I the mean, same page and, here. And, and for the, all the reasons you listed, I went along with it. My suggestion had been Bone Tomahawk, which we can save the review for that movie. When we if watch we, it. If, if, when we watch it, which I think we're planning on doing that this weekend if, if we can't come up with any better plans. If we don't that. have actual women to take out on dates. Yeah, then we yeah. do There's the a high possibility that that's the case. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, I had made that suggestion and uh, you know, you, you convinced that you were more persuasive than me and everyone went along with yours. So we watch it and the plot of that movie... It, Mine was new too, for the record. It's within like the last three months. Yours was like... Yeah, an old, old. movie, 2015, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the plot of this movie, I mean, it felt like the plot of something that would have won a, like in a seventh grade film class, would have won an award for that class. And I mean, basically, I mean, spoiler alert if anyone's going to watch it. Yeah, let's give, let's give somebody a second. If you're going to watch Those Who Wish Me Dead, 
skip ahead. All right, let's skip ahead a few minutes, and because we're gonna, th- we're definitely, we're not holding back at all. We're definitely yeah. gonna spoil this movie. Yeah. So the plot- just don't, also don't watch it though. So there's that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, hopefully by the time you just listen to this, time. you know not to waste your time. But the plot, I mean, you could tell. A, I would say ten minutes into the movie, I was starting to get some. Uh, some bad feelings that this movie was not going to shake out the way I was hoping. I think we all kind of did. We were starting to do like the MST3K thing pretty early on in the movie where we were like making those side comments where we're trying to be funny. Yeah. Like as you watch the movie, you know? Yeah. I got throughout the movie that those became more frequent for sure, which is always a bad sign. But then they kind of started early, which is definitely a bad yeah. sign. So basically to summarize the plot, basically you had this accountant who worked as like a forensic accountant and he and his business partner had uncovered something bad and some bad people they don't really explain who these people were or what it was all about but basically this guy had uncovered something bad in some kind of business negotiations or or some kind of embezzlement or whatever it was some big powerful people were doing something this guy caught them his business partner gets assassinated at the beginning of the movie and so he this guy who was just not really an interesting character at all but he took his son they fled florida and then they conveniently left behind in their house a picture of where they had done this survival school in Montana. So then the bad guys show up to his house to kill him, and they see, oh, there's that picture of him at that survival school in Montana. Let's go there. Yeah, and, and there's, like, <laughs> pictures of him with, like, 50 different people yeah, on but, this wall. But they for, pick this one thing. But they're home. positive it was going to be the survivor like, school. Clear, clearly he's going there because, yeah. Of, yeah. So anyway... So then they beat them to Montana where they proceed to murder the dad and they, the kid in the car, they go down this ravine and they, for some reason they weren't able to kill the kid. So the kid gets away. In the meantime, Angelina Jolie is this firefighter who had some PTSD because she had screwed up a previous fire and uh, let these people die. And so she was all messed up. And this kid wanders into the woods and of course he runs into Angelina Jolie and then the bad guys go around and start recklessly killing all these people when they're trying to track down the kid. And then they decide, hey, let's start a forest fire because that'll help us. So they start a forest fire. And then basically the plot is Angelina Jolie kicking ass against these grown assassins, grown men assassins. And at the same time, they're running away from this fire that well, the bad guys started. Don't forget um, John Bernthal. Yeah, so he was the cop and he was like part of that survival He's like the school. sheriff. Yeah. But his wife specifically like saved his life, like his yeah. his pregnant wife. Yeah, she destroyed yeah, she like kill or almost killed the assassins at the at first, like basically fought both of them off and then she gets away, but then the assassins decide, "Hey, we're going to take him and we're going to pretend that we have her in custody or that we have her um, like captured somewhere and we're going to hold her hostage and make and trap him. him. Yeah. So yeah. then they take him and they're like, okay, we're going to make him track the kid, which I don't really get how that was useful at all. But it wasn't. In fact, the only thing that ended up happening was that he actually did a good job leading them to the kid. And that was it. Yeah. So he shouldn't have done that. And he almost sacrificed himself at one point where he's like, you're all just going to kill me anyway. So he fights him and then they just like, beat him up and then he's like all right fine i'll still show you and you're kind of like okay and in the meantime his wife comes back and apparently has a crack shot and kills one of the guys so there's only two these two assassins in this whole plot or in this whole movie coming after these, these people and specifically this kid and oh let's not forget tyler perry is in the movie for all of 37 seconds 
<laughs> and no explanation like what his be, besides the fact that apparently he's the head bad guy that's it we don't know what he is who he what he does like anything beyond that and we just know a little bit about these assassins who is taken out by john bernthal's wife if you don't know john bernthal let's see recently he's on walking dead he's a walking dead guy he's he was in uh he was in wind river for a little bit and then that show the equalizer i think he's on that isn't he it's like a tv show uh, i don't know the tv show equalizer but anyway whatever look him up he's actually a good actor i like i do like him a lot his john john bernthal's wife kills one of the assassins and angelina jolie kills the other one so the two women kill the assassins and the men are good for nothing Oh, completely um, worthless. Completely worthless. And uh, John Bernthal ends up dying at the end. <laughs> like, uh, and that's about it. I mean, and the kid's kind of a pansy. Angelina Jolie gets struck by lightning and, is, like three times. and tries to shake it off. <laughs> She's like, no, I wasn't struck by lightning. And the kid's like, yeah, you were. You were struck by lightning. She's like, no, I wasn't. And I'm like, why is she lying to him? Like, why does it matter if she was struck by lightning? Well, She's the, alive. Who cares? And the, during that scene, they were running through this field and lightning was striking every, like, three seconds and all within, like, ten feet of them. Like, they're running through a minefield or, like, they're running across a battlefield and there's, like, shells blowing up all around them. But instead, it's lightning. Like yeah. I don't think lightning's ever behaved like that in the history of the world, but for some reason in the context of this movie, that was an important scene. Yeah. To have her get struck by lightning, then get up and she's fine, and then they just carry on. And the kid breaks down at one point, and, like in that scene. It's just very, very strange hard, movie. Hard There's, to watch, yeah. Yeah, really hard to watch. There was really... There were, there were they didn't come full circle they didn't even tell us what the controversy was what the scandal was who Tyler Perry was it seemed like they were kind of involved in the government but there was zero reference to that really yeah um, just because it seemed like they were ex-military guys but even then we don't know for sure yeah basically the entire plot seemed to revolve around making sure to make Angelina Jolie look unrealistically badass along with that other which by the way she's never looked skinnier that was what was interesting too yeah. like she wasn't in her tomb raider shape like tomb raider she's like not just in good shape but she was like she had muscle she was like packing a punch it seemed like if i remember right in this one she was like tiny like she was very little like i mean what every woman desires to be right i mean in a good way she looked very skinny and small but in a bad way very insufficient in what she needs to combat these two assassins mm-hmm. i mean it was a little ironic there but she did it she pulled it off and i mean i don't know it's just it's a little hard to watch when it seems like they're forcing it down our throat is all and that's what's so funny about this this whole idea where feminism seems to have morphed from women having like equal rights and doing whatever they want to actually just being more like men that's what i feel like we're witnessing now is that women don't want to be uniquely feminine or women women want to be men that's essentially correct. Yeah, I would. I mean, when you really boil it down, that's essentially what it is. I mean, this whole. I saw a tweet. Uh, so it was uh, female empowerment in twenty twenty one. Number one, work long hours. Number two, live in an overpriced shoebox. Three, drink excessively. Four, shun marriage and children. And that's actually like a pretty pretty accurate, I would say. And the thing is, is I think the narrative that has been shown to a lot of these young women these days is that they've built this narrative that men have been blocking the door from like living this life where you go out and have a career and get all this fulfillment out of that and that 
now they've pushed the door down and it's like, hey, everyone come and enjoy your equality. And the reality is, you know, and I think most people who have been in a career understand this, is that there isn't a whole lot of, even in like high powered careers where you make all kinds of money and have all kinds of prestige, there isn't a lot of life fulfillment that comes from that. It, it, it really, like, I think most people who do these careers are doing it simply because they have to, because they want to be a good provider. And this is, you know, this is kind of the, like, as far as men, like, we, it's not like we love having careers and going to work every day and having, dealing with all the BS that you deal with in a career. At the end of the day, we're doing it because, A, we need to make money to, imp- to impress a girl enough to, get her, to trick her into marrying us. And two, once we do trick her into marrying us, we need to provide money for her and the children that you have with her. And if it weren't for that, like if you took away those duties or that sense of responsibility. Or incentives. Yeah. I think most men would be more than happy to go camp out on the beach and uh, look for coconuts and spearfish and spearfish all day and eat those. And that that would be the life they would live. It wouldn't matter as much that your vision sucks so bad if you're ever on an island. That's true. Because you wouldn't have any incentive to get back to anywhere else. Yeah. And honestly, like if it weren't for all these pressures and all this sense of like, I want my life to be meaningful and have a family and all that, I probably wouldn't give a crap about having a career. I probably would just go do that. It is ironic that, you know, well, so here's, I guess it was really what I mean. I don't know if it was ironic, but society and this, to some degree, this is men's fault, right? And this is not feminist Harper coming into play. I mean, this the sense that we have put so much value in the idea of making money and excelling in your job, but stopping short of anything else. Like, that is the ultimate. That is a problem. And that has been perpetuated by some men, obviously, right? Some dirtbag men that don't care about women or children. Like, that's not really in their goal. They care about women insofar as it helps their own status. But outside of that, they don't care about having a wife, having a, a mother of their children, and having children, Right. And so they become very braggadocio about their things, their houses, or whatever else. Um, and that's a problem because society starts to prop that up, it seems like, to a degree. And so from there, when society is pushing that as the ultimate, that the goal for everybody, then women might latch onto that and be like, yeah, okay, then who cares about motherhood? Who cares about being a wife? Anything like that. So I am going to go out there and, and excel in my job and and care put more weight and effort into achieving those things as opposed to ultimately what we are incentivized to do is to be husbands, fathers, and providers, protectors, right? Presiders, everything it says in the family, proclamation to the world. Because the job and the money, all that stuff is a means to an end. That's just a facilitation of being a better husband and a better father. And so society, for whatever reason, stops short of that, doesn't care about families and says, it's all about status, wealth, whatever else you can get. But we don't really care about families, being husbands, wives, whatever. And that's, I don't know, we just don't, right? We care about those things only because it tends to make us better husbands and fathers. Yeah. Well, and as a result of, I think, more and more women going out in the workplace and having careers... I think it's also, as an unintended consequence, kind of raised the bar of what it means to be like, you know, let's say the American dream is to be like upper middle class, whatever that means. Now, like we've raised the bar of, of relatively speaking, what that means so that if you want to be upper middle class, you almost have to have a two income household because that's the bar that's been set now. And now you got to make this much money instead of whatever it was before. 
And now it's just putting more pressure on everyone to work more and make more money to keep up with the Joneses. And it's and so now we're kind of locked in. I don't know how you. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think society backs off of this now. I think it's going to be that that'll be the norm forever moving forward. Is that the husband and wife both work and the kids hopefully have some means of having a relationship with their parents. Um, hard to do, but it's not impossible. I guess nowadays with all this work from home stuff, it's certainly becoming easier to do. Um, but you know, you, you got to ask yourself what's 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 important to you as a as a parent and as a spouse, and uh, how much does money matter? How much does your job matter versus having your kids grow up in a home where they have a parent who's there for them? Yeah. Um, have you heard about the book The Two Income Trap? Uh, no. So there's a book out there. I haven't read it, but it's called The Two Income Trap, and the idea is that basically when there are two breadwinners in a family, the mother and the father, it actually can damage, do more damage than good apparently because all you do is just raise your spending and it, I don't know, it becomes, and you become a little bit more straddled or strapped, I guess, when it comes to your free time and things like that because you feel like working is your lifeblood, both do, instead of just one. Something along those lines. Interesting take. Um, I imagine there are good arguments in it. Guess who wrote it? Elizabeth Warren. Really? Yes. Interesting. Is, I don't know when. You read, you read her book? I said I didn't read oh, it. Okay, I got you. But I know the gist of it. The idea, like, she wrote it years ago, and the idea was that she felt like it wasn't necessary for women to be in the workforce. I mean, I don't know if it was specifically women, but she said it certainly wasn't necessary to have two incomes. Yeah. You know? And maybe at that time, she did think it was more um, just of a you know better situation for women to be raising the children i don't know yeah i mean here's the thing like i don't want to come across like i'm against women working or anything like that like if you're a woman and you want to go pursue a career i think by all means you should do that but just recognize that in life everything you do there's a it's i think a lot of people think they're making choices and really all you're doing you're not really making choices in life as much as you are making trade-offs whatever you do in your life there's something else you're giving up. You, there's no such thing as a decision that's not giving something else up. And so if you choose a career, if you choose to invest you know, 10 years of your life into the schooling that's going to take to get to a career you want, that's a trade-off. And you just be cognizant of whatever trade-off you're making and think – I think one of our weaknesses as a generation is we tend to only think of the consequences of our decision in the immediate future or in the next two years, five years. But I don't think we have great vision for like – what happens when I'm 50? What happens when I'm 60? Because is no matter how hard we try as a society to devalue the concept of having a family, having kids, doing that traditional lifestyle that was handed down to us from other generations, as much as we try to downplay that, at the end of the day, what is going to give your life value when you're 50 or when you're 60 or when you're 70? Your career is not going to do that for you. Uh, the, your coworkers and the people that you worked for or worked with they're not going to give a crap about you when you're 60. They're going to go on and they're going to have their families and their things and you're going to be a lonely individual if you bank all of your life on that. And that, that, that that's my reason why I think we need to have an honest, introspective look at this phenomenon we're seeing is, as far as leaving the family behind and valuing other things is what's going to give your life value when you're old and alone? And yeah. it's, it's going to be your family. Well, in a, an increasingly godless society, I think those two things might actually be one and the same, believe it or not. Um, 
I agree with everything you said except for one thing, which is I'm not sure it's actually generational. I think it's human nature. I think you can apply the same blame to the baby boomers that have gotten us into so much debt and didn't seem to care about what was happening in further generations down the line, right? Mm. So I do think there's that whole, it's in human nature. It's just kind of fixed in us to not really care about long-term as much as short-term. That's the only change I would make to uh, your, uh, I don't want to call it a monologue because I feel like that (laughs) devalues it, but you get my point. Yeah. Um, Let's shift topics here, though. I think we've covered this enough. Um, I wanted to throw this your way. We saw recently that BYU, this is a little, this is BYU talk for those listening, um, kind of getting into the end here. BYU Sports is a top 10 brand in college, of all colleges. Um, and there was some uproar, so to speak, that they didn't belong in the top 10, which I think is kind of crazy. Like, I, I don't get why that. Like, to be a religious institution with over 16 million members at this point or whatever it is that are indirectly, at the very least, indirectly tied to BYU. And in some case, like, I would say at least a couple million are directly tied to BYU, right? Like, they have a vested interest in there because they're big fans or whatever. And they are number 10. They're behind Notre Dame, Texas, Ohio State, Alabama, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Auburn, Michigan, and Oregon, which Oregon kind of surprised me. I think that's got to be a Nike thing um, that they made the top 10. Just in front of Penn State, USC, Miami, Tennessee, Florida State. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole list. Um, I do. It is of note that Utah came in at 32, which honestly I think is pretty good for Utah. Like, I mean, they're, they're in front of a ton of their Pac-12. Yeah. Uh, fellow Pac-12 participants, like I would not have expected Utah to be in the top 35, not a chance. I would maybe say top 50, but like somewhere randomly placed in 40 to 50, but 32, like I think that's something for them to like kind of hang their hat on because they don't have those ties that BYU has. Like BYU has a far and wide reach around the freaking globe. So the fact that they're in the top 10 is of no surprise to me, but there was an uproar apparently for whatever reason. Yeah, well, I think part of the reason there's an uproar whenever these kind of lists come out is people define, like, people have their own criteria. They don't, like, they're not willing to look at the big picture or, or consider the fact that whoever made this list had a certain criteria they used to come up with it. And I think everyone just wants to say, oh, well, BYU, they, they haven't won as many championships as Florida State, so they're not as big. But one thing to keep in mind, because I, I tweeted that, you know, maybe, maybe BYU is a tad overrated here. I would definitely put them in the top 20. Top 10 is maybe a tad of a stretch, but you also have to keep in mind, like, what is it that makes these other schools, like, for example, like, how do you differentiate Georgia and Texas A&M? Like, what's so special about Texas A&M that Georgia doesn't have or vice versa? Like, at the end of the day, they're all kind of similar in that respect, but BYU being the flagship university of the LDS church, that's something that's truly unique about BYU. And that, I think, for a list like this counts as quite a bit. You know, whenever BYU is on like a national telecast, they always talk about all the unique things about BYU that's exclusive to BYU. You know, the missionary football players that come in and out of the program and all the unique aspects about that and the church and everything. And so I think with that in mind, I think it probably is enough of a like a a joker card, so to speak, that gives BYU a boost that you could argue they're in the top 10. There were actually only two, maybe three schools that I was surprised that BYU was ahead of. And the first there being who comes in at number 12 is USC. Like, that one, 
Yeah. That one kind of surprised me because that is a long-term brand. Like, they have some of the most wins in college football of all time. I think the most Heisman winners. Yeah. Well, they, they were the Bama of the early 2000s. So. Yeah, and... Um, and then the other being Florida, the others being Florida State and Florida. But I think that's my bias coming into play because I was a kid of the '90s, and Florida State, and Florida was everywhere. Now, yeah. granted, Florida obviously really took off in the Urban Meyer years, kind of around our mission times. Um, so there is some recency there too, which you'd almost expect them to be a little bit higher than twenty. LSU maybe, yeah. but I don't really see like I don't know. I mean, I don't see LSU stuff any like everywhere. They do have don't don't they, doesn't LSU have the biggest stadium? Or maybe they don't. No, I think that's uh, but they're Ohio up State, there. right? Yeah, but they're up. No, I think it's Penn State actually that has the biggest. Oh, that might be right. Yeah, yeah the big it's house. Just, yeah, the big house, and then the horseshoe, Ohio State, perhaps. It's it's up there. I know that pretty much like Tennessee's a big one, LSU's a big one. Um, those are the. But even I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the metrics. That's yeah. another thing. Like we don't really know the metrics behind that. If it's just like marketing sales, that kind of tells you everything you need to know. I don't know if that's all they're going off of though. So. I will say that BYU fans are particularly devoted in a way that I, is uncommon. I think, B, like, yeah, they're all unrealistically like, like cockeyed optimists. Yeah, and, and I think because, <laughs> a bunch of Billy Mumphreys over well, here. And, man. and part of that is kind of a side effect of the church. Uh, I think BYU fans, like deep down, kind of feel that there's some sort of like extra meaning behind their fandom of mm-hmm. BYU because it's like the Lord's University or you know whatever everyone makes. Are fun you of saying us it's not? Saying. No, I'm just, I, I'm just saying that... <laughs> Not anymore, probably. That gives that BYU one. fans a little extra hubris, I think, behind their fandom that other schools just aren't going to have that in their fan base. I'm sorry, they just don't. Yeah, could be. Um, along the same lines, though, uh, former BYU alum, Taysom Hill, in a vicious quarterback battle with Jameis Winston for the starting position for the New Orleans Saints. New Orleans, excuse me, Saints. Uh, I... Saw a headline the other day that said, "The fact that they're calling it a QB battle is racist." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I, that, that was a. I think that was a. Some, I, I quote tweeted that. Is that it? It was some random. I mean, you're always going to find some random fan who says that, but that's becoming like a relatively common sentiment. That like, if there's anything like a situation like this, that you can just use the racism card, and that it's a legitimate argument. It's like a mainstream thing to say these days. Well, the irony was that in the picture that was tweeted out, it showed both of them taking snaps in practice. Yeah. Taysom's like hulking out, per normal, and Jameis looks like frail. <laughs> like, well, there's so it's a... just like, now granted, I know that's not what you necessarily need in a quarterback, because it's like freaking strong as an ox type quarterback, who's also about as fast as one, too. Um like, he's faster than an ox. Oh, that's true. Or Oxes are slow. I mean, a bull. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, he is. He is about as fast as a bull, though. My goodness. Um, our bulls are fast, right? They're probably faster than ox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's strong as an ox. Faster than a bull. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't think bulls are typically used in like comparisons of speed, but maybe they're fast. I mean, they are. Like, yeah. avoiding them is tough, like in bullfights and stuff. Yeah. I've been to a bullfight, by the way. That was a traumatic experience for a nine-year-old did, did boy. Did they kill the bull? They do, man. Stick a sword up. right through his neck. It's, uh, it's pretty pretty messed up. And we were not warned going into that. <laughs> you thought it was just going to be like in the cartoons where they have the little cape. I was nine. <laughs> what the hell do you want? Like, what, what am I supposed to expect? Anyway, um... It is a battle. It's a legit battle. That's what happens when the last time this guy, the other guy started, he threw a record, league record, 33 interceptions in one season. Um, 
So, yeah, I think there deserves to be a battle. Now, when it comes to just, like, overall finesse, quarterback position, probably vision and throwing capabilities, Jameis probably has the edge, but Taysom has shown time and time again that he is capable of making things happen. And in in some respects, more than your typical average quarterback is able to do. Now, that just depends on how Sean Payton wants to use him, which he seems to want to use him, like, kind of branch out. I don't know. There's a lot of talk about that. I don't know who's going to get it. It kind of seems like it's leaning Taysom from Sean Payton's perspective. He seems to be leaning that way, but we don't know. Yeah. You know it'll be interesting to see if BYU has two starting quarterbacks in the league at the same time coming this season. That would be exciting. I do know that it seems the Saints fans, the consensus is they want Jameis, but I think that's just a natural byproduct of they've seen Taysom and they want to see what Jameis can do. Um, and so I think the fans are leaning that way, and I'm sure if Taysom does start, they're going to be on him like, like, um, like white stink on, on a monkey, like white on rice, or whatever, whatever analogy you want to use. There. Is that a racist analogy now? I don't know. It kind of like I hesitated because it kind of is that seemed, racist towards white people. I don't know. It's probably white on rice. Someone would probably spin that as like a white supremacist thing or something. Probably but, racist towards Asians. Probably, yeah, <laughs> probably. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think the fans are kind of rooting for Jameis in that regard. But So maybe the best-case scenario would be Jameis wins the job, everyone realizes he sucks, and then Taysom comes in and saves the day. But I, you know, I'm still just going to root for Taysom to get the job. But it, it, that'll be fun if he gets it. Yeah, he'll it will be, be. He'll be like this, the next, this next generation's like Steve Young where all the LDS fans become Saints fans because – uh, they want to root for their BYU guy. Oh, so, for sure. Yeah. Well, well, all right, we'll see, man. Going to be an exciting year coming into it. We'll obviously have more BYU talk coming down the down the wire. Yeah. We'll get more fodder. Um, we do, in the coming weeks, have a podcast episode I'm going to cover with a friend of mine who had quite the experience getting arrested after the BYU-Oklahoma game. I don't really know the details yet. He's going to detail it all on the podcast at some point. I think you'll be there, Chase. And we'll do this kind of together. Yeah, that'll be fun. And uh, we'll discuss that when it comes, obviously. But yeah, so just stay tuned for that one. Other than that, I think we're good to go. Do you have any other rants you want to get out? No, I think that's about it for me. So. Alrighty, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. All right, take it easy. There's an hourglass.